0: this is Tamsin Granger and Dan Ebuhoff in the background there with Tamsin and Dan read the paper it's December 27th 2019 with any luck at all this will be the last podcast the last Tamsin and Dan read the newspaper podcast of 2019 and of the decade yeah. right so because of that we have some very special guests. We have Sadie Abuhoff, Granger Abuhoff, Nico Jasbon, Noel Borg, and Zeke Abihoff, uh with us today to comment. Our wonderful uh, helmsman, Dan Abuhoff, is feeling a bit under the weather, uh, so he's going to chime in on a few subjects and then he may fade into the background. This is totally out of character. But he's going to do his best to make that fade happen. So uh, it's been a busy holiday season. Lots of eating. Some spectacular eating. And uh, a little bit of culture. Uh, we went to the movies the other night. We went to see Little Women.
1: And uh, what did you think, guys? Sadie? So I've been waiting for this all year because we know it's coming out at Christmas. So it's a big buildup, lot to live up to. Big movie. I thought it was good. I thought it was different. It was maybe not my absolute favorite version of Little Women, but I thought it was good.
0: What is your absolute favorite?
1: I would have to go nineteen thirty three with Katherine Hepburn.
0: Okay, all right. Isn't that everyone's favorite? it's not, you know, not a surprising <laughs> choice. Not a weird choice. But yeah, yeah. So this is Greta Gerwig directed. Correct. Right. Louisa May Alcott still wrote it
1: arguably. Ooh. There was they bounced around a lot in this one. They took some liberties. Uh-huh. Did you object to those liberties? Only cuz it was confusing because everyone's hairstyle pretty much stayed the same, so it's hard to tell what year we were in.
0: Okay. But in terms of the thread of the story and the, you know, the story itself.
1: It was it was a little discombobulating, I think. Really? Because you don't know how much time people are spending in each era. Like you don't know how long No, but
0: what did you get out of it, okay? Did you, I'm overall
1: did you I'm saying it was discombobulating. That's okay. what I thought it was.
2: Well what other people think?
3: Yeah. I thought it was really good. I thought uh Sadie pointed this out. Timothy Chalamet may have been miscast there. But um I thought that the stars did a really good job of keeping things moving. It was interesting. It reminded me a lot of um you know, the previous effort with the same star and director and has folks who are similar feelings about the family and relationships.
0: Okay. So Greta Gerwig's, uh, what was that movie called?
4: Lady Bird. Lady
3: Bird.
0: Okay. That was also, that was a, a family holiday excursion. Yeah. yeah. A year or two ago. Two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so what are the other, who are the other stars in it? Uh, Emma Watson, mm-hmm. Laura Dern, Bob Odenkirk, Meryl Streep, Meryl yeah. Streep.
4: I don't know, the Chris Cooper.
3: Yeah, Chris Cooper is the neighbor, and Timothy Chalamet as the uh, neighbor's grandson.
2: Okay, and there's another, I, I have no idea, the other heartthrob. The guy from Branchester. We don't know his name, but he's actually very good looking. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to Timothy uh, Chalamet. Chalamet. Might have been yeah. his nephew. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, mean comments
0: about poor Timothy. Uh, mm. That uh, he's too skinny, he's too childlike, he doesn't really uh, come across as a potential love interest as much as one might hope. Now, you want to
5: lust after that teenager, but it's so hard. He <laughs> looks like a teenager.
4: He's just a child. Yes. Well, yes. One thing that's nice about like you guys brought up Lady Bird and also this movie, like the nice part about it is that it's about the friendship and the love between the sisters. The, the heart of the story is not necessarily about the romance. They kind of happen as afterthoughts, and I think that this film really emphasizes how much that's an afterthought um, of the story as opposed to... And so the, the love, the real story, the love is between the sisters, and that's really cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. I
0: think they also tried to make it a little more realistic because I know when I was reading Little Women, um, so many of the characters, with the exception of Jo, but uh, Marmy especially was so... Good, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of perfect uh, that she became to me uninteresting. And it seemed in this movie they tried to give her some layers, uh, some thought that she was fighting to be this good, mm-hmm. uh, really, which uh, I thought was an improvement.
3: Um, yeah, I think the only character that didn't get that treatment was Beth, um, mm-hmm. but Beth has, like, you know, her sickness. So maybe they add some depth there a little bit, but she's kind of ignoring paper. Of Joe and the other sisters. Joe's oh, so Joe's the most interesting sister. The girl who marries uh Chalamet was supposed to be good?
1: No.
2: No, no. no okay. Marmy. Marmy, the mother. Mar, the mom. Amy
1: is the one that marries. I see. All right.
2: So that's the principle Rob. You can't keep the girls straight. But that's yeah. number one. Number two everyone is everyone can accept you. The... I
1: mean, you have to <laughs> Everyone. You have to
2: keep Beth can't at keep a distance. keep them straight. Too many girls.
1: You have to keep Beth at a distance. You know, they, they should Excuse me. <laughs> can I speak now? Yeah. You have to keep Beth at a distance the whole time because She's kind of the angelic one, so you don't want to humanize her.
2: You know what they should do? They should do one of those TV shows like "Something or Forget It" or something like that. You know, because so is the house too small? Should they move into a bigger house?
1: That's great because we were just watching that. Thank you for that insight. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, that's well, cool. well, you, know, that's cool. that's you, called you pointed a out that
0: that, that um, all the houses are too nice; and they're too big. How oh, these yeah. people are so impoverished, and the right. food and, and
2: the, the food, food is unbelievable, big. Well, the, unbelievable. The fact goods. that they're
1: saying they're poor and yet they have. A house, like a housekeeper or whatever, a a cook in their yeah. house. So they're employing someone, and yet they're really poor, and they don't have funds for anything. Only
3: yeah. well, one servant. Uh, yeah. The
1: um
0: uh, at least one review I read pointed out that they had brought in some aspects of our sort of current sensibilities, including uh you know Instagrammable food, you know, and the the love of baked goods. And I think also, you know, sort of house lust. I mean, we, we like nice interiors and intriguing decor. So it was going to be there whether it was uh, authentic
5: or not.
1: But, but they do that They do that with Jane Austen movies, too. In the Austen movies, they always talk about being poor, and then they have like five servants.
5: Isn't some of that the other way around, too, that like, at today we say, like, oh my goodness, servants, how indulgent. And at the time... They were spending nothing on iPhones, but if you wanted, you know, food, you needed to cook, right? So, like, that was more of a middle-class thing then than it would have been now. Not a single iPhone in the entire movie. Let's see, people were selling their hair to get a train ticket. Sure, that's true. But I, I the, the way I read it, at least watching the movie, and maybe this is... I, I have no idea what's historically accurate or not with this, but the way I read that was like, there are some things that they they kind of perceive themselves as being more or less middle class, and there's some things they expect to have. They expect to have a house, and they you know they expect to have a feast on Christmas morning, but mm. they were not actually they don't actually have the funds to guarantee those things all the time. So when they give away their Christmas morning feast, they can't go out and buy another one, right? Like it's it's something where their perception of where they what their lifestyle should be maybe is not the same thing as what they can actually afford. You know, you can inherit a house, but that doesn't mean you can afford to put food on the table, you know, or have the the style of dresses that you expect. That's kind of Mm -hmm. what the Mm -hmm. character Meg runs into, that she has a sense of herself as being like her friend who would have a new dress and who would be able to pay for it. But then when she goes to uh, buy the fabric for that dress, her husband has to remind her, oh, no, like you may think of yourself this way, but that's not our actual income. Yeah, but he backs off from that. Yeah. Um, And speaking of dresses,
0: I did see an article saying we're all now going to dress like little women. Oh. Cause it's going to be the in thing. Just the. Just the I one see one. a lot of disappointed looks here. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly not. Maybe. Right. Uh, that, I should say the
2: housekeeper is Jane Howdyshell, who's been on Broadway. Oh, mm. and a bunch of musicals. And uh, of course, the publisher was Tracy Letts, who's written plays for Broadway. Right. Mm. And been on Broadway. Mm-hmm.
1: Speaking of Broadway.
0: Uh, but let me just say, I do think I get the award in the room for having read the most Louisa May Alcott, because yes. I did read Little Women and women? Little Men, yeah. and after that came Joe's Boys, which I I think probably three people in the United States are
2: still having read <laughs> but Joe's I get, Boys.
1: I get no credit for being Joe March for Halloween. Oh. Uh, so Halloween. That, is a rough, that is a rough costume for Halloween. You have to explain that to everyone.
2: Have you were Joe March for Halloween? Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: we still have that hat.
0: See, we still have that years.
2: hat. Were you living with us then? Uh, okay. Daniel,
0: so. it's possible that you missed some of the Halloween costumes during so. your tenure in New York. Anyway, back to New York. Uh, the, um, we, Dan yeah. read a review in the New York Times of the latest Harry Connick right. uh, one-man show. And,
4: More or less one-man
0: show. And, it was such a glowing review that uh, he sent me out to the market immediately to buy tickets. And uh, I got tickets, and we zoomed in to see this. It was a celebration of Cole Porter. So what do you think,
2: Dan? Was it worth? It was great. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not clear to me uh, why, but um, I mean, look, I, I like it. I'm an easy sell. I like Cole Porter. I like Harry Connick. But this was fantastic, and you liked it perhaps even more than I liked it. And what's interesting is... They do the first couple of songs, and there's nothing subtle about it. I mean, they do some foolishness, but then they, they get going. And he starts saying, okay, now we're gonna, he walks up, uh, and he says, we're going to do anything goes. And he's got a band behind him, which is about 20 pieces. And it's got strings, and it's got horns, and it's got uh, drums, and it's got everything you can possibly imagine. And they just knock it out of the park. It's like huge. And you turned to me at one point after that first song and said, the band is unbelievable. Okay. Yes, what really stood out
0: were the performances of the band members and the arrangements. Right. I mean, it was really over-the-top spectacular. Sometimes we go to these, uh, you know, sort of showpieces for various performers like this, and uh, the uh, music takes kind of backstage. It's really, you know, just uh, a background for the, the singer. And here it was really an interaction between Harry Connick as singer, as, you know, kind of director, as uh, arranger, and uh, really fun. He made the point that uh, Cole Porter did uh, that as well. Yeah. And he, one of uh, the set pieces was showing how you might arrange a Cole Porter right. Arrange, uh, song. Right, ar- arrange it and orchestrate it. And he... Um, and did... it was brilliant, and it... it, it Combined uh, he, he says, so Let's video project right. projections right. He, with the performances of I'm going
2: to show you how we orchestrate something. Let's take any song, random song, okay, night and day, that's the one we worked out. And then he worked through it, because you can't do it randomly, right? And uh, it was kind of very interesting. Um, but in the NPR interview I, I read, uh, they said that makes a little difference. He's doing the orchestrations for his band, and the band is participating in the way they put the, this all together. So that's why the performances are so fabulous. Nice. This method, no, they're, they're playing it exactly the way he wants and they rehearse it. Yeah. This, this is a really band.
0: curated band. Some of these guys have been with him for many, many, many years. Yeah. Sadie and I went to a Harry Connick performance about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, some of the guy, same guys were in it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's really a seasoned crew there. Um, you know, and he's fine. Oh, he's better than fine. He's fine. But, well, listen, Sadie and I also went to Hugh Jackman a few years ago. Yeah. And Hugh Jackman, I thought, was just mesmerizing. That man has charisma. Well, see,
2: that's an interesting point. I just, you know, but I can't uh, really speak to that. But you can, because you can compare. He's a terrific performer. I think
1: Harry Connick has a lot of charisma, too.
0: Not as much as Hugh Jackman. What he's got going for him is really um the musicianship.
1: Well, so, like, why are you trying to compare people to Wolverine, you know? Like, that's two different <laughs> categories here. Yeah. But I think Harry Connick was great when we saw him, and you said he was great in the pajama game. So I don't understand why we're so surprised that this is great. He well,
2: does great we're not, things. We're not surprised. More more we're more surprised. Not, when we're I not surprised. But we're relieved that we spent all that money and it was no, great. No, it's, it's like when I <laughs> said actually it wasn't even that much money. That, that was also the surprise. But as I said to Tamsin at the time, you know, I don't see how Hugh Jackman, who I know that you, Tamsin, have seen in concert, could match up to this. He doesn't have the musicianship. He doesn't have the background. He's he's not you know the kind of band leader and and um, musician. The Harry Connick, there's no comparison, and you said that's absolutely correct. But I will tell you that when when Hugh Jackman performed, he is so charismatic. People in, in in the audience were like leaning out with tears in their eyes. They were like captivated in a way. It's not going on here.
0: Yeah, he he auctioned off uh, his clothes <laughs> at the end of the performance. This is Hugh Jackman. He I know to raise money for Broadway Cares. Years. And, uh, you know, people were coming to blows. I mean, uh, it he was raised a lot of money. Of yeah. Thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars.
1: All right. They're so, both great. Both all fine. right. Well, thank you, Dan.
0: Yes. And, uh, I'll do and do another show feel, feel better.
2: Yeah.
0: So, uh, here we go. What else did we do, um, this right. weekend? Uh, oh, um, all right. Let's get back to articles. All right. So, uh, speaking of, uh, Instagrammable right. baked goods, uh, there happens to be a cookie war going on in Italy. Now, Italy. We love Italy. And we love everything about the food in Italy. And we think of Italy as everything is, you know, fresh and out of the, uh, kitchen of some uh, wonderful older Italian mama. Um, and, uh, but turns out, uh, their mass-produced cookies are not too shabby. I can say that from personal experience. I have some real favorites there, but apparently things are coming to blows.
3: What What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, at least there's here. a lot. There's a lot of competition. So you might be familiar with a little thing called Nutella. Uh, so Nutella is famous for their spread, and people say in the in the category of chocolate spreads they dominate. I'm not sure why it's that's its own category, but I guess it is. And they for years have had this kind well, of. What? <laughs> Well, of course it's its own category. It's not peanut butter. No, it's, it's not.
0: chocolate spread. But, but is there anything besides Nutella? Well, there really, for a long time, there wasn't. So, uh, you know. So they kind of had the market cornered for mass produced.
1: Well, there's the knockoffs yeah. of, like, Skippy does a version of it. Jif does a version of it.
3: But in Italy, the next closest competitor for years was that, like, 2% of the market or something like that. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, Nutella was doing gangbusters business for years. And then a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, Pandastelli, um, forgive me if I'm getting the name wrong, but Pandastelli puts out a lot of, uh, of cookies, okay? And they say, you know, in Italy, it's pretty normal to eat cookies for breakfast. Cookie is a snack. But like you said, we think of it all as pasta, tomatoes, etc. But here they, all the time, have just a little cookie for breakfast. They well, don't, they don't eat much breakfast. Well, it turns out they do. It's just all cookies. Yeah, <laughs> of, cookies for breakfast. They interview people that seem to be eating the whole bag of cookies for breakfast.
0: Well, that's why they said they keep them small, the bags small. No, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's the, the one. The problem with br- the Nutella cookies
1: is that they're in a big bag, and yeah. there's a bunch of cookies in there, and people are buying the bags, and so. they feel
4: like a lot of the younger people in Italy are gaining weight.
3: Yeah, so we're getting, we're getting ahead of themselves. You guys love the image of Italy that you've had, Mom, of people, like, you know, spelt people in suits, riding mopeds, like, while eating gelato magically and sipping espressos. But apparently, there's a lot of people just, like, eating shoving cookies in their face while they go to work. <laughs> and um there's anyway, so a year and a half ago or so, Panda Stella said, You know what? I smell weakness, we could make a spread as well. And they said, You know what? Nutella spread is made from hazelnuts largely from Turkey. Outrageous. Okay. Right. Our spread not very patriotic. No. Our spread is made from Italian yeah. hazelnuts. Which right.
0: just happened to be superior.
3: Yes. And they happen to own a lot of those trees. Meanwhile the environmentalists are rubbing their arms that everyone's Planting all those hazelnut trees, bad for biodiversity. Anyway. Uh, so they come out, the cookie people come out with a spread. So the spread people, over the course, they say they, they were already working in the last 10 years, uh, to the tune of 133, 130 million dollars in research into their own cookies.
1: Nutella. Yeah.
3: So Nutella comes yeah. out with like the bag of like cookies that have like spread in the cookies. And then Panda Steli says, no, we're going to come out with our own cookies that have the spread in them also. Um, and the ones that you talked about being two to a package, that's Panda Study. they say like, they're so decadent, it's just an occasional dessert. We want to be both, like, you know, health conscious and environmental, Mm -hmm. so only have these two cookies, and tell us, like, look, there's a whole bag of cookies, buy the whole bag of cookies. But
0: I thought some of their strategies were pretty sneaky, like, uh, isn't it Nutella that introduced the cookie abroad, like in other countries, first, Mm -hmm. um, hoping that Italians would be traveling and see these. And try them and come back and be demanding them in Italy. So by the time they were introduced in Italy, there was already a, you know, thriving demand. Yes, a little bit. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, I also think they didn't want the cookies to be too terrible if they brought them into Italy first. If yeah. the people outside of Italy didn't really like the cookies, they probably wouldn't have brought them into Italy because that's like, Really, the people who are after... So it was test marketing. Yeah, it was yeah. like yeah, test yeah, marketing.
3: It was also marketing. It's style. a little bit yeah. more romantic, the test market location than like Kansas City. Like, you know, uh, like uh, We're trying out the cookies in Paris. If they do well in Paris, we'll release them in Milan. <laughs> um,
0: and I also thought it was uh, funny that the Pandastella people, theoretically, the employers are not even allowed to say the word Nutella. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, yeah, they can't. Yeah, they're very. The, the
0: competition is very serious. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. They see themselves as this, so they belong. Uh, one final known on this: they belong to um, like a, the Barilla company, which you might know from like the pasta ingredients that you buy in the store. Right. You know, versus the the Ferreros. So these two big families/slash companies have been dominating um, the Italian like food market for a long time. And they're two the, of the few Italian companies that you would know, that you've heard uh-huh. of Nutella, you've heard of Barilla. That's uh-huh. not true of many Italian companies. That's part of why it catches people's interest.
0: Uh-huh. All right, so that sounds fun. I'm I'm all for cookie wars. If cookies are just going to get tastier and tastier, um, you know, that works for me. Meanwhile, Sadie, what's happening with Poland and
1: brassieres? So who knew Poland is the capital for bras? Apparently... All methodology and correct methodology around bra fitting, anything around building bras, all of that stuff, came from Poland. Poland is the expert. So there's a big article in the Times about Poland being the expert in bras and how the United States is doing it wrong. Everyone's wearing the wrong size bra, which we already know. And if you're having trouble, the solution is to go Polish. And a woman travels abroad to Poland and travels around and tries on different bras in different places and has an experience. Listen to this. She she said, I braced my hands on the wall for balance. The precision and awkwardness of this method gave me absolute confidence in it. That's in reference to a bra fitting. And then it said, Miss Mahalicek observed, offering notes to her staff in Polish, I'm not sure what she was saying, but it sounded expert. (laughs) And she said there are no fluffy couches at this factory. So there's some really serious lingerie towns in Poland where that is what they do. They do a lingerie, and they're great at fitting bras, and they're great at um, figuring out what size is correct for you.
0: So did this woman who wrote the article, did she
1: succeed in getting the perfect bra? She did. She got five or six bras, and I was expecting them to all be like $200, but they're all like $40, 50 $60. Bucks. And she said that oftentimes what happens in the U.S. is people just fit you for sizes that, that they happen to have in the store, and they don't fit you for your true size because most bra stores end at like double D or triple D or something in that realm. So they just fit you at that, and stop instead of giving you your true size. And she said the bras felt like they were tattooed onto her, which is how a bra is supposed to fit.
0: All right. Uh, but what, what does this mean for the future? Are we all going to be, or, you know, somebody's going to start importing bras. these? I think you have to import the Polish bras, you have to import the Polish British, uh, fa- bra fitters system. Right. I don't think the fitters are going to move.
1: Well, I mean, you never know. But I think there's there are a lot more measurements you can take than just the standard two measurements that they usually do in the store. So you learn how to do the Polish bra fitting, and there are a lot more stores in the U.S. that are starting to carry Polish bras. No, but yeah.
0: the reason why we're all wearing the wrong bras in, in the U.S. is because we don't want to be fitted. Yeah. That's still going to be the problem. Uh,
1: but you can fit yourself. You can measure yourself.
0: Are these really good-looking bras? I mean, they, they don't.
1: They don't. I think I. They don't show any pictures, but I would assume they are. They mention things like lace and colors. So <laughs> sure.
0: I gotta I say because you know, my gut image of Polish and lingerie is not
1: comfortable. Well, connecting yeah, for oh, okay. me. Let me tell you something about bras. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm more, all ears. I'm more interested. As someone who struggled my entire life, I'm more interested in technology. And physics than what color and lace and all of that. But they use technical terms like, let me find it.
0: Updraft.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's like pendulous as opposed to how much, yeah, how saggy. They say pendulous. Okay. And they That's have, fantastic. they have scandalous <laughs> things like strap gate. There are a lot of like online forums where they talk about, you know, the importance of straps versus bands versus blah, blah, blah. So yeah. there's a lot of crazy All right, lots to learn. All right. There is a lot to learn. Okay. But it gives me hope that one day I might have a correct fitting bra. All right.
0: Nice to know. Zeke. No.
1: What can you tell us?
0: Yeah, what's your take on this story? About sleeper spies. Sleeper spies? No, it's no else thing.
4: Oh, well. Oh, I, 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 thought I, was, I mean, we, we, we were going to be a joint What's mine joint is yours. Team. What's mine is yours. Yes. Yeah. You guys, yeah, well, you're, married married, married you're married now. You're married now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it turns out sleeper spies are real, um, which I guess we already knew, but this story is specifically about a young boy who is the son of two sleeper spies who had run away to Canada, and they had, they, I guess they were sleeper spies in Canada, they gave birth to two boys, and they started a diaper business, which I guess was their cover. Wait a minute, they were spying in Canada? They were well they were in Canada. I don't know if they were spying on Canada, but that's where they were sent. And, and these are Russians? Where, these are Russians. Russians, spying in they're living in Canada. Living they're in spying
0: Canada. somewhere. Spying somewhere. Okay.
4: Um getting information there. Um and they started a diaper business and then they had the two young boys. Um eventually they moved to the the US. Um they had a period living in France. The family moved to the US in 1999 and eventually lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and then while they were in the United States, the FBI found out the parents and the parents were arrested while these two boys were still living with them. And, um, basically the parents were okay. They ended up getting sent back to Russia. There was a, a swap seized with American spies. Right. Um, but the story is about how, whether or not Canada was going to give these two boys or specifically Mr. Vavilov, Alexander Vavilov. The younger son, um, Canadian citizenship, and they ruled in his favor.
5: So he will be Canadian. He
4: will be Canadian. He's going to
5: stay.
4: He was well, renewing his so
5: passport. He already had a Canadian passport from before. He went to renew it. They rejected him, and then eventually on appeal, he got that decision reversed. Because there is some debate as to whether he should be eligible for a Canadian passport.
0: So has this information been known for a while? It sounds a lot like the. TV show, The Americans. Sure, does. Yes. Um, is The Americans based on that, or is this just, uh, yes. or a lot of this happens and uh, the writers just...
4: Yeah, the parents were arrested in 2010, and um, it, this story of these parents was what inspired The Americans. The backstory of the Vabalov family is the stuff of a spy thriller, which is... It helped inspire the Americans. So
0: it's real. It's going on.
4: Yeah. It's real. Talk I wonder how right the parents now. are
0: doing in Russia because uh, the people who got uh, repatriated in the Americans didn't look that happy.
4: Hmm.
5: We know. Look to your left. Look to your right. One of these people is a spy. I, <laughs> why do I have to? That's what this well. teaches you. Okay. All <laughs> right. They are among
0: us. All right. And even more spooky is your next story, which is about
5: ghost kitchens. Ooh. What's that? Isn't it no longer Halloween? (laughs) It's not a regular ghost. It's a ghost kitchen. (laughs) So it turns out uh, that's a hot new kind of kitchen.
4: Do
5: they wear the chains they forged in life? Ooh. (laughs) It's it's not a Christmas ghost. It's a ghost (laughs) kitchen. So uh, regular uh, commercial kitchens you expect to find in back of a restaurant. Uh, In this case... Uh, we have commercial kitchens that operate without any kind of storefront. Well, we know there's a lot of delivery f- going
0: on from all kinds of restaurants. Okay? Not just pizza places anymore. Okay? But the point is here, these kitchens don't have seating, right? There's no restaurant. There's no takeout.
5: It's only delivery. It's only delivery. Um, and there are a couple interesting implications for this. One, I guess, is that... It's uniquely possible now, uh, in a way it wasn't before, because of delivery apps. Because you can, as long as you're, I guess, properly permitted or whatnot, uh, you can list yourself on Grubhub, on DoorDash, on Uber Eats, and have a pretty pretty good access to your customers without having any physical advertising out there. Uh, so that seems to be what enabled this, uh, you know, supposed recent surge in ghost kitchens. But then beyond that, there are uh, other implications too, like how... It doesn't uh, you can you can take advantage of smaller areas to be making this food and you can take advantage of a greater, I guess, range of cuisines within that small area. So describe situations where you can have one kitchen that's producing Indian food, producing pizza, producing, you know, miscellaneous other cuisines, and that one kitchen sends out deliveries to all different places. On the delivery app, that might appear as several different options. You know, are you going to order from the Indian place or are you going to order from the pizza place? It's actually all coming from the same building.
0: Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's one thing uh, to be putting together a whole restaurant in a location. But to squeeze in some kitchens in very dense commercial areas where there might potentially be a lot of people to order, I guess, is uh, economically uh, easier to do
5: yeah this article describes uh, this new york times article describes how this seems to be popular now or at least on the rise in really densely populated coastal cities so big mm-hmm. cities like new york and san francisco mm-hmm. i think Miami that's where too. people are exploring this uh because the real estate is at such a premium and there are so many people in a small area who want delivery right so it seems like there's there's opportunity there also being in New York and San Francisco uh, and taking advantage of this technological advantage through the apps, we get the attention of techie people because yeah. people from the tech world who are interested in this as a new wave of uh, the restaurant business. They want to get in on this and see where it can go. So there are these so these ghost kitchens aren't just you know the next location of some restaurant you already know. there are in many cases startups that are built entirely around this concept. So you have places that are trying to set up these very efficient kitchens with a range of cuisines, and they want to really take advantage of the technology.
4: Yeah. What
0: in other invest- words, so you're having some vertical integration. Yeah. Like DoorDash is investing in um, the ghost kitchens, uh, etc.
4: There's one investor who reportedly invested 400 million in one of the new ghost kitchen companies, and then another investor that's kind of interesting is David Chang of the Netflix documentary series that we watched. Um, and he also helped open up Momofuku. He was the restaurant operator behind Momofuku. Um, and he has, like, some problem. He's kind of curious about how this will ultimately affect the cuisine as well because, you know, tech companies, Amazon's not necessarily worried about the quality and how beautiful it's presented. And so he's concerned about how um, that could affect the quality of the food as well. Yeah, he yeah, has some a,
0: reservations about
5: um, how tech people can interact with
0: food people.
5: There's a cultural difference. They have different yeah. priorities in their business. Right. Uh, so normally, you know, what you end up with is like, you know, tech companies or, or apps that can't exactly assure you that, uh, you know, the, the restaurant has gotten your order and restaurants with terrible websites. There's still... Mm-hmm. A bit of a chasm there that. Right,
0: right. That's very, that's very true. Um, now there are other concerns. One is that this is going to be the death of restaurants. That we're not going to go out together and see each other you know that places like uh, mcdonald's n- not even necessarily talking about fine dining but mcdonald's not going to exist anymore we'll just sit in our home and mcdonald's comes to us but that way we don't uh you know have any interaction at mcdonald's and the article points out that in some communities it's a community gathering place yeah uh, right.
5: so there is that yeah there's also the idea that if your community is built around mcdonald's you have bigger problems so
3: I'm uh, oh, not worried. Uh, right. uh, really? Yeah, well, no, I'm not. I'm not yeah, trying yeah, to call
5: yeah, out. A little bit of I'm not a trying freestyle. to attack those communities. But what I am saying is that the the idea that like uh, a a new convenient way for people to get food is going to you know destroy the public square that we value so dearly. That's at this place that this restaurant that most that many people are are consider themselves above visiting. That doesn't really say anything good about the public square at this point
1: i think you'll start seeing incentives for people to come in person like you even see it with um uh little caesar's the whole incentive to like go and just pick up a a thing of pizza instead of ordering it for delivery there's an incentive to go and pick it up from what's the incentive the, the price. they give a good price. Uh, oh, really? It's yeah. a cheaper price? And it's hot and ready. Uh-huh.
0: Well, the, the nice thing about um, the ghost kitchens is, though, you can craft menus that are specific to delivery. Because not everything you eat in a restaurant tastes good by the time it gets to your house. Um, and that can be very frustrating. Even for the restaurateurs. They're not out to sell bad food. So when they put together a takeout order and uh, it gets to somebody's house and it's awful... Um, th- that's not a great thing ever either. So you can actually put together a menu of things that, uh, hold, uh, their, you know, texture well, reheat well, uh, et cetera. So that's some even, potential. It's not even
5: clear if it's going to take off though, because in the article they describe a startup that was entirely focused on this concept uh, from a few years ago that closed its doors and how, you know, their, their kitchen. Maple. Yeah. Right? yeah maple.
0: Wasn't, it had famous uh, people involved. Was Chang involved in that?
5: Uh, I forget. I forget what it says in the. Uh,
0: somebody big was involved. But yeah, so
5: that uh, yeah that closed down, and that their space is the space that is now being used by Zool, the terribly named new company in this space. <laughs> so it remains to be seen if this is going to catch on and be sustainable and really grow outwards and destroy our our cherished McDonalds. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me tell you, Zeke, if you go to Dunkin' Donuts on a Saturday morning and sit and eat your donut. In Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, it's quite a community. It's everyone who comes back from church and gets their Dunkin' Donuts. It's not a bad thing.
5: That sounds nice.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, I think there is something to say that, like, some communities that maybe if all they have is McDonald's, maybe McDonald's becomes even more important in those situations. This one suggests, like, it's a hub for voter registration and a daily ritual of senior I citizens. I you can't go around hollowing
5: out communities and reducing yeah. them to relying on McDonald's and then turn around and say... Oh please, we need McDonald's. You're our hero, McDonald's. There's well, a bigger problem of what's right. happening to towns that don't that have anything but McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts as a place for people to gather. Let's and get that
1: into... is a problem for another day. Yeah. I
5: think. Uh-huh. All right, so let's move on. Allowed... Let's move
0: on to a quick uh, museum update. Uh, this is the time of year when uh, I uh, typically travel down to Washington D.C. to. Uh, um, intersect with Sadie Abuhoff, because that's where Sadie works and uh, lives. And uh, when I go down there, I always go to the National Gallery. And by George, I had a great time at the National Gallery of Art in I Washington. I was receiving
1: text messages all day long, like, don't worry, I'm at my leisure. Don't worry, I have plenty to do. <laughs> well,
0: Don't and, worry about my leisure. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. I just went to really two exhibitions in the museum during the whole, I don't know how many hours I was there, maybe three. uh, One was on Verrocchio, one was on Pastels, and uh, they were terrific. Verrocchio was especially fun. Sculptor-painter, we mainly know him as a sculptor from the Renaissance, and maybe you don't even know him. Does anybody know Verrocchio?
1: Well, I've heard many things about him in the last two weeks,
4: so okay, I know well, about him.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, compared to knowing about uh, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, people haven't heard of him. But guess what? Verrocchio was amazing, all right? The exhibition is amazing. It has examples of his work in marble, examples of his work in bronze, terracotta, and painting. He was the teacher of Ghirlandaio who was the teacher of Michelangelo. He was the teacher of Perugino, who was the teacher of Raphael. He was the teacher of Botticelli. You've heard of Botticelli. And he was the teacher of uh, um, da Vinci, okay? Da Vinci was one of his assistants. And when you look at some of these paintings and some of these works, you see all these people um, in those paintings and artworks. You see their influence. So he was tremendously influential. I had a great tour guide there. And uh, of course, I'm a fan of tour guides, but I've had some real stinkers at the National Gallery. This woman was knowledgeable and entertaining and really brought Verrocchio uh, alive for us. Unfortunately, that show closes uh, pretty soon, uh, January 12th. So, um, it's tough to see it, but it's uh, just a magnificent, uh, very fun show. Uh, and, um, also while I was there, I went to a teeny weeny little, uh, exhibition about pastels called A Touch of Color. You know what pastels are? Yes. They are chalks. All right. Brilliant colors, not, don't think like pastels, light blue, light pink. They're all different, fabulous colors. And uh, I've said before, they're specifically terrific for doing portraits. Because, you know how you powder your face? Okay? It's not just to soak up the um, oils, okay, and sweat. Actually, powder is little discrete particles, okay, that each reflect the light at a slightly different angle. So to powder your face can create actually a wonderful glow this is why I powder my face mm-hmm. and or uh your nose
1: more specifically. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Well, only at Christmas time is when I want my nose to glow. Uh, but anyway, so when you do a portrait in a pastel, there's almost a a liveliness, a you know, a terrific uh, three dimensionality and uh, oh. expressiveness of a portrait in pastel. The problem is it doesn't hold okay it's hard to fix it smudges off etc um so but during the um 17th century especially the 18th century there was a certain enthusiasm for pastels and some of the greats here were on display including uh rosalba carriere uh an 18th century female uh person who, uh, who did uh Terrific, uh, had a terrific career in portrait pastels. Um, pastels are used on paper, on vellum, uh, on a variety of surfaces, and then there were more. There were some more modern pastels there as well, including from our buddy Degas and Whistler, and uh, even more recent painters. So that was just fun. That was a little treasure, and then the other. Um, exhibition that is a must-see that I won't see because it's in Spain. It's at the Prado. Let's go. Uh, yeah, well, that would be fabulous, but it closes February 2nd. So it's hard to... I love when the New York Times has these articles about these things that are so terrific, and you can't possibly get there in time. Anyway, it's a um, show of two... Uh, mistresses, as opposed to masters of the art of painting, uh, both from the 16th century, Sofonisba Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana. Now, you've heard me say Sophonisba Anguissola before because her self-portraits are terrific And in my mind, she looks a lot like Noelle Borg. (laughs) Okay, and I always think of Noelle when I see her portraits. She does charming portraits that are kind of spontaneous and adorable, especially of her family members, uh, her little brother holding a dog. The dog is squiggling around. The brother has this funny little smirk on his face. Um, just doesn't seem like the 16th century. So she's terrific. She comes from a, a fun family, an interesting family in Cremona, uh, Italy, and uh, her her parents had this uh, wonderful idea of first names Sophonisba she had a sister lucia minerva europa and others they were very well educated the interesting thing about Sophonisba is she becomes the court painter for philip the second in spain well that's not the only reason she's there actually philip the second has a new wife elizabeth of valois who is fourteen huh. Sophonisba is hired to be her lady-in-waiting. Basically, she's Elizabeth's nanny. Uh, they become very, very close. Unfortunately, Elizabeth will die only nine years later. But Sophonisba has a, a fascinating career, wonderful stuff to look at. Um, Lavinia Fontana, she's okay. Uh, but uh, really, in my mind, it would be fun to see Sophonisba's work in person. Um that's uh that kind of wraps it up uh for what we need to talk about. We're looking forward to the end of the decade. Uh, a you know new year is coming. Uh, anybody have things they're looking forward to or disappointed in uh, about the past decade or the next uh,
3: the coming decade? Uh, I think scooters are going to continue to be on rampage. Disappointed e-readers never really totally happened 1,000 percent, but whatever.
0: Yeah, I feel, I feel stupid reading my, uh, Kindle. Uh, I'm the only person around. But and we went to a whole movie about, uh, how the publishing, businesses uh, business is reeling about, having thought that, uh, e-readers would be the thing. What, what else, uh, robots? robots? Robots everywhere. Yeah. There'd
4: be more robot. robots. Robots. <laughs> I know there's a uh, robot robots. in the giant food yeah, now. There's one in, in the supermarket. Yeah. Haunting.
0: I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with it.
1: No, yeah. no.
4: Uh,
0: Name the
1: mom, Nunu, <laughs> Nunu.
0: Finally, uh, how about uh, well? I got to say, one of the big things in my mind about the past decade was the kind of reemergence of
3: TV shows. It's a golden era of TV, and we'll see if that continues. Maybe we'll shift into the golden era of podcasts. Well, uh, <laughs> it depends what you
1: call it, TV, though, because people are watching short form shows on. Their phones or their tablets or whatever they're not necessarily watching on TV.
0: Well I, I, I'm thinking of non in the theater uh, sure sure uh, shows um, and also the idea again again the short form episodic uh, format. And you see movie
1: stars coming to streaming services rather than just staying with the big um, movie companies and writing yeah. talent as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, whereas uh, a few years ago it was like TV, you know, that's for idiots. Yeah.
1: My hope is that my Xfinity bill goes down at some point because of this. Your Xfinity bill may go down,
0: but other bills from other services um, may go up.
1: But I just need some to go down if others are going up. Zeke, you looking forward to anything besides robots?
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: I think the balance of sports that are popular is going to shift. I think football is going to decline and other. All more, highlight. Yeah, it's going to be all highlight. A decade more. of highlight. Well, I think you're going to see the trends of like all of the, the retired football players having so many health challenges. That's going to have an effect on how football is managed in the future. And I think that's going to change a lot. I think you're going to see maybe athletes being paid in college for sports. Mm -hmm. a lot of different changes. And where do you see hockey? I think hockey's on the rise. I don't think there's, (laughs) there aren't as many health issues in retirement in hockey as you have with football.
5: We can take advantage of this moment where dad is out of the room uh, due to his sickness to say, football is ending. New York Times (laughs) has been right all along. Football is on its last legs. Surely everyone can agree. It's twilight days for football. All right, so we're
0: going to wish everybody a happy new year. Uh,
5: We're going to wish uh, a speedy recovery
0: to... uh, For
1: everyone's sake, for (laughs) Dad. For everyone's sake. Dan
0: Abuhop. This is Tamsin Granger uh, with the cast of thousands here. And uh, we'll see you next week with Tamsin and Dan. See you next decade. See you next decade. Happy
4: new year.